If you would, saints, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a, a pew Bible right in front of you. And uh, Ecclesiastes comes right after Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. E- Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, wisdom literature that we have been studying verse by verse and chapter by chapter for the last number of weeks, and we continue it this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 13. When you're there, I'm going to ask that you stand with us as we read God's Word together. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 13. Looks like everybody is standing. If you're able, let me read. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I want to preach to you this morning on this text, and I'm going to title my sermon a, uh, a, a title that might seem a bit depressing, but bear with me. We're going to call this sermon, Remember Death. Remember Death. Let's pray together and ask God for His help as we study His Word. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for Your Word. We ask that you would speak to us now. Help me to speak your truths, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts and shape us and fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you realize this as I was reading these 13 verses, but we just read a string of Proverbs. Proverbs are pithy little phrases, usually one sentence and one verse. 
Proverbs are kind of like poetry in a sense. You've got to read them to try to understand and get at the meaning, and they're often beautiful. They make you go, hmm. They make you think. The point of Proverbs, as in the book of Proverbs, is to urge us to live according to wisdom. Because what the Proverbs will show us and what we see here in this text is that the life lived to the fullest is not a life in which we pursue pleasure and money and material things, but rather life lived to the fullest is a life in which we pursue and live under the wisdom of God. Are you with me? So Ecclesiastes chapter 7 comes after Ecclesiastes chapter 6. All my theologians say amen. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 1 through 6 is, has been somewhat of a, uh, a, a de declaration of what the, the preacher, the author, has discovered as he's gone on this research project to try to figure out and answer this question, can I find meaning in this world, in the horizontal, in the things that I can see and touch and feel without the vertical, without God? And what we have discovered time and time again as he showed us this in a myriad of different ways is that there is no satisfaction without God. But uh, uh, Ecclesiastes is not a depressing book, as many think it is. All throughout Ecclesiastes are these splashes of joy in which the vertical crashes down into the horizontal and the author says, let me show you how to enjoy the life that God has given you. Let me show you what life looks like. And what it looks like is a life lived according to the wisdom of God. And so, chapter 7 then, he moves into these Proverbs. And as we read the Proverbs, they commence with somewhat of a jolt that offends our senses, or at least confuses us. In verse 1, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. That makes sense. He goes on, in the day of death, than the day of birth. That doesn't make sense. What does he mean? That just as a good name, good character, good reputation is better than expensive perfume, in the same way, death day is better than birthday. Well, to understand this, we have to understand the importance of wisdom and living our life accordingly. And so let me take you to chap uh, uh, same chapter, verse 11 and 12 of our passage, which is the author's conclusion. We are going to begin our study with his conclusion. Here's his conclusion in verse 11. He says this, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. 
And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What he's telling us here in these two verses is that wisdom preserves life. Whether you end up financially wealthy or not, wisdom will generally lead you to life. To a living, literally, a longer life. To being able to provide for yourself wisdom, in other words, keeps you alive. Now, Proverbs, listen to this, are not promises. They are general truths. Does that make sense? If we turn them into promises, which God did not intend them to be, they get confusing. Because we all know that there are many exceptions where a young person dies according to God's ordained plan for their life for His purposes. So these aren't promises, but the general truths do remain. Meaning, I am tired and sad of the fact that I've known so many people in the streets who live in the streets who believe that they can follow their uncle and follow their brother and they go from 13 to 14 to 16 to 18 and then they die. They end up in the hospital. They end up paralyzed. What the preacher is saying is if you live according to foolishness, you will die. And if you live smart, <laughs> that's what he's saying. If you live smart, you will live. And you'll likely be able to provide for yourself and provide for your friends and provide for your kids and be there for your kids and even perhaps be there for your grandkids. Wisdom is simply living every day, making the next right decision. Wisdom preserves life. He goes on to say wisdom is like an inheritance. Meaning the richest people that I know are not necessarily those who are monetarily wealthy. But the richest people I know are, are, are those poor or rich who have an abundance of life. They have an abundance of love. And they have an abundance of relationships because they've lived a life of wisdom. Wisdom, he says, is like a shelter. Just as money is like a shelter. So, for example, money can get you into your apartment. Wisdom keeps you in your apartment. Amen? There is security in wisdom. Now, we have to read the Old Testament in light of what we know in the New Testament. This is how we read the Bible. It's one full revelation for us. And in the New Testament, what we discover in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, is that Christ is the wisdom of God. Meaning, as Christ comes into this world, wisdom is personified in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, as we read this, we know that Christ is our shelter. Amen? Christ is our inheritance. If you agree with me, say amen. amen. Christ is our, the, the, the preservation of our life. In the world, the sinner seeks shelter in the treasures they possess. But in the gospel, 
we seek our shelter in the treasure of heaven, which is Jesus Christ himself. In the world, the sinner seeks their inheritance in their daddy. But in Christ, in the Gospel, we seek our inheritance in what the Father has stored for us and what the, or our older brother has kept for us. And that is a treasure beyond your greatest imagination. In the world, the sinner idolizes the preservation of their life on this earth because it's all they know and it's all they have. But in the Gospel, we see the world that is to come. And we see that Christ preserves our life, not only here, but in the next world. So, meaning, as we get into this, this sermon, and my theme, remember death, only makes sense if you understand Christ. If you understand that Jesus has lived the life that you and I should have lived. If you understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross to die the death that you and I should have died. If you understand that three days later, Jesus broke through death, bringing us into a whole new reality, a whole new world, and all who turn from their sins and trust in Him are right now forgiven of their sins, given new life. If you've been given new birth, I wonder if you can testify to the goodness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. New life in Christ now, and when we die physically, one day we will be raised to, to new life with God forever. And in that world, it will be concrete. It will be weighty. It will have gravity. It will be love. It will be joy. It will be peace. It will be like this life, but a thousand times better, better than our comprehension, which is why the Bible only uses metaphors to talk about it. Because how are you going to talk about something that you can't even understand? So the preacher says this in these verses. He's saying, live a life of wisdom. How? What he wants us to do in order to live a life of wisdom, check this out. He wants us to remember death. He wants us to consider our own mortality. You see, the difficulty for many of us finding hope in Jesus Christ is we forget our mortality. The reason we are perplexed about why Jesus is our hope is because we have amnesia as to our death. Sigmund Freud, who I often don't quote on Sundays in my sermons, but man, he's spot on with this. Freud says that humans practically act as if they are immortal. He explains that they can't wrap their mind around their mortality. Quote, he says, it is indeed impossible to imagine our own death. Because, as Freud goes on, whenever we attempt to do so, we can perceive that we are in fact still present as spectators. What he means by this is as you think about your death, let's do a little thought experiment here. Everybody think about your death. What do you see? People at your funeral, weeping over your casket. Maybe no tears at your casket, I don't know. Maybe nobody's at your funeral. 
I don't know how you envision it, but most of us, I think, we got friends, right? At least our church family's going to be there. Amen? People thinking about you, talking about you. Your kids, perhaps, think, how are they going to remember you? What they might tell their kids about you? If you're married, your spouse going on and marrying somebody else. Your job going on without you, an empty desk, an empty chair. What Freud is saying is this, and here's the irony, is even when we think about our death, we're still there, but as spectators. Meaning we can't actually wrap our mind around the fact that when we die, we will have no clue how our funeral goes. We will not be in this world to hear our kids tell our grandkids about us. You see what I'm saying? We can't imagine what it is like to cease existing in this world. And so he says that we act then practically as if we are all immortal in the way that we live our life. Matt McCullough's book, Remember Death, which I stole my title from, he says that being real about our mortality is necessary in order to lead us to Christ. Meaning we can't find our hope in Jesus if we are not honest about the fact that we will actually, really die in this world. He says, quote, before you long for a life that is imperishable, meaning before we talk about heaven, before you talk about, man, I want to live forever, he says, you must accept that you are perishing along with everyone else that you care about. You must recognize that anything you might accomplish or acquire in this world is already fading away. Only then you will crave the unfading glory of what Jesus has accomplished and acquired for you. And you need to recognize you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything you love in this world before you will hope in an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Man, I feel like he's reading Ecclesiastes and just summing it up for us. We learn from hundreds of tombstones where McCullough got his title from for his book. Hundreds of tombstones which say, Memento Mori. Remember death. It's as if the testimony of the dead is calling us from, our, from their grave to be reminded that as they lie in their grave, one day we will lie in our own. Memento mori, remember death. The skull on their stone reminds us that one day our flesh will fade away and there will be nothing left in this world of us but a skull lying in a box. A body laid to rest is a testament that we one day will join them. In the old world, when they used to write that on the tombstones, death back then was in your face. 
They really felt death. I mean, to eat, they had to butcher the chicken that they were going to eat and deal with the blood and the guts and watch the chicken die. For them, the, uh, when, when the sick would pass away, they would often die at home and the loved ones would take care of the body and, and in some cases, they would even bury their own loved ones in their backyard. They, they saw death. It was in their face. They touched it. They were very they knew what death was. They, they, they knew that, that lives came to an end and there was no more living to do. In the modern world, we tuck death away, meaning we go to the grocery store to get our chicken. And it's so neatly wrapped in that little Purdue thing, sitting on a little nasty piece of foam or whatever that is, and it's, you know, the light's coming down from the grocery store. And it helps you forget that you're, this is actually part of a dead animal that was killed behind closed doors in a butcher shop. All right? Bodies are taken by the morgue. And then we see our loved ones when they're done up in the casket and they look almost the same. Yeah, we, we've tucked death away. We don't touch death. We don't see death like they did in the old world. But at the same time, there's something strange and ironic about our modern era. And that is because of social media, death is constantly calling our attention. And we can scroll social media and watch videos on, online and, and death becomes entertainment. Watching a shooting, watching a killing. Yet at the same time, there's just something strange about this. There's a desensitization to it and a distance. We see it. It's there. We think about it a lot. But we are the living, and they are the dead. And in it, we, we don't grapple with our own mortality. Funerals today are often filled with empty phrases such as, don't cry, they're still with us. They're still with us. One of these days, I'm going to correct that minister. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not. Don't say that at my funeral. Do not say, Joel is still with us. I will sit up in my casket. <laughs> see, I, I can't even fathom not being there. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Now, when we think about our own death, it makes us feel anxious, doesn't it? Some of you right now are feeling a little anxious and a little depressed. And you're wondering, why did I come to this church? <laughs> this is offensive. This is even triggering for me. Let me ask you this question. Does considering your own mortality lead you to anxiety? Or does it lead you to wisdom? I want to press in a little bit here. The preacher 
And the writer of Ecclesiastes believes and wants for us to see our own mortality, to consider our own death, to remember death, and not be led to anxiety, but rather be led to wisdom. Why? Well, a lot of things change over the years, but a lot of things remain the same. One thing that doesn't change are the fools of the day. The fools of today are the same as the fools 3,000 years ago who can't grapple with the suffering of this world. And that leads them then to what I'll just simply call escapism. They try to escape, and we'll talk about that in just a moment here. And what happens with the fool is because they're they're constantly escaping these bad feelings as it relates to the, the imminent reality of their own death. When somebody dies, they are shocked and angry with God. And when they feel their own body begin to decay and they feel the reality of their own mortality set in, they become bitter with God. So, Since we are mortal, remembering death leads us to living a life of wisdom. That's my sermon right there. Let me show it to you really briefly in the text. How does does remembering death lead us to a life, not of anxiety, but a life of wisdom? Number one, I got two points for you. Number one, remembering death teaches us about life. Remembering death teaches us about life. This is what we see in verses 1 through 4. As he begins these Proverbs, he see, we see this first one, which is, I've already stated, is somewhat of an enigma. A good name is much better than an expensive perfume. That's what he's saying. Laura's laughing at me. She's not so sure. Maybe per, expensive perfume is better than my character. <laughs> no, even Laura, even Laura would agree. She's a big perfume fanatic, everybody. I'm making her embarrassed right now. But a a, a good name refers to your character and how your character develops into your reputation. Your reputation, based on your character, is more valuable, are you with me, than an expensive perfume. And then he says, in the same way, I think this is how we understand this text, in the same way, the day of death is better than the day of birth. What does he mean by that? Well, verse 2 helps us understand the first proverb. In the second proverb, he says, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. The house of mourning would be a, a funeral. The house of feasting would be a party of some sort. So day of death here and day of birth does not necessarily refer to your own day of death or day of birth, meaning it's better for you to die than to be born, but rather what he's saying is, is on those days where you remember death, on those days when death confronts you, such as a day of a funeral, it's better than an expensive perfume. It's better than the day of birth. A funeral is better than a birthday celebration, is what he's saying. Why? Well, let's keep, let's keep going. The proverb continues. Verse 2 continues. For, here's the reason, this is the end of mankind, which means everybody's going in this direction. Nobody's going back to their birth. 
Five-year-old birthday party? That's wonderful. Actually, kids' birthday parties are the worst thing to go to. But. <laughs> it's wonderful, but you're not going back to five. We are all heading toward death. That's what he's saying. Everybody's going in this direction, and he's saying the living will lay it to heart. Everyone will die. I don't want to be trite here. I want to be serious. Everybody will die. Everyone you love, your mother, your siblings, your kids, yourself, your friends, everybody in this room will die. There's something about that reality that leads us to life. Richard Baxter, the preacher, commenting on why he preached with such power, he said, the reason is this, I preach as a dying man to dying men. Meaning he keeps death before him as he steps into that pulpit. There is no greater enigma than our own response to death. Because you know that everybody will die. You can just look at history and see a long history of the fact that everybody is gone. Yet every time somebody dies, we say, I didn't see it coming. I can't believe they're dead. Isn't that odd? The preacher is saying we've got to be wiser than this. We can't be surprised by mortality. The living, he says, in verse 2, should take this to heart. Meaning... As you look at death, death becomes a tutor and we learn from it. Meaning we learn more from a funeral than we do from a birthday party about life. Meaning we learn more from a graveyard than we do from a maternity ward about life. Two more Proverbs continue to make his point. Verse 3, sorrow, he says, is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But yet, my wife likes to watch movies that make her sad. Why do we do that? Some of you like to listen to songs that you know are going to make you sad. Why do you do that? This is, the, this is the proverb right here. It's because there's something about looking at that sadness, being reminded of perhaps the brevity of life that makes you enjoy the life that you have makes you appreciate the life that you are living. There's something about a sad face that leads, he says, to a glad heart. Verse 4, another proverb. He says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Or, or pleasure. We could say the house of pleasure. The fool doesn't like the feelings that remembering death conjures up. And so the fool runs to the house of pleasure. Southern comfort. Really comforts for a season. The house of pleasure, or we could maybe say the crack house, the clubs. Wherever we can just escape. Wherever we can run away. Where are the wise? The wise are attending the funeral. That's what he's saying. While everybody else is getting drunk at the death of their loved one, standing outside the, uh, the chapel, smoking weed, getting high, trying to forget, the wise are sitting in the funeral, learning, 
about life. So here's the lesson. Remembering death teaches you how to live. And this is not rocket science. Like, even country music teaches this. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing or something like that. You know that song? Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you are dying. Don't ever tell anybody I quoted a country song. <laughs> it would ruin my reputation. Yeah, but, but, but remembering death does something and it teaches us how to live. You know, some of my, when, when I'm doing well in life, I'm considering my mortality. I was sitting in a, 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 a junior something or other at Poly High School. What was it? Some junior, inaugural junior thing. What was that thing we were sitting in? Yes, the ring ceremony. And it was so boring. And I was just trying to make it through. And I looked around the room, and this is what I told myself. I thought to myself, in 100 years, we will all be dead. Hear me out. Hear me out. And there will be a picture of this ring ceremony somewhere that historians will look at. And we will just be a thing of the past. And me having that thought, I thought to myself, I'm going to enjoy this moment. Because this is fleeting. And I did. It actually helped me enjoy your ring ceremony a little better. Like, when we consider mortality, we live life. We're able to live in the moment. We're able to be more present. We're able to cherish those moments with those that we love. We're able to forgive quickly, to not hold grudges. We are less likely to want to waste our life with sin. We live generously. We're going to probably want to have a little less social media and a little more face-to-face -face interaction with people. A little thought experiment, another one here. If you had one week to live and nobody else knew it but you, how would you live it? Useful. You would want to be useful to, the, to those that you love. You would want to live life to the best of your ability with all that you've got. Now, what if we looked at death every day and we lived every day as if it could be our last? Oh, how would that change the way that we live? So remembering death teaches us about life. Secondly, remembering death keeps us from vanity. From vanity. Verses 5 through 10. We see here in these verses a collection of six Proverbs, which really seem disconnected from each other. They seem disconnected from the first four verses, which clearly focus on death. Yet, I don't think they're disconnected. I don't think he's just randomly stringing things together. What he's doing in these next six Proverbs is he's showing us how we should face suffering in this world, which connects with this theme of death. The first three Proverbs focus on the fool. Verse 5 he says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. The song of fools, it often refers to the empty praises of a fool. And so what he's saying is, is it's better to feel that suffering that you get from a loving rebuke than empty praises from a fool. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, 
so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Thorns would have made a quick fuel in the ancient world. And as you can imagine, a bunch of thorns piled up, they would light quickly, they would burn quickly, and they would go out quickly. And he's saying this is how the fools laugh. They have an empty laughter. Their laughter, it, it comes out of nowhere, and it, it springs up, and they all of a sudden have a lot of joy, and then just as quickly as it came, their joy is gone. Their pleasure is vain. Verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What he's saying here in these Proverbs, I believe, is that the fool fills their mind with pleasure, verse 4, empty praises, verse 5, empty laughter, verse 6, and then even corruption and bribery in verse 7 in order to ignore the reality that life is short and death is imminent in order to ignore suffering. The next three Proverbs here focus on wisdom, meaning how do we face suffering? How do we face bad things? First, in verse 8, we see a proverb on the end result. Here he says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What he's saying is, is, is since the end result is better than the beginning of a thing, the end result and focusing on the end result allows you to push through the suffering it takes to get there. Next we see in verse 9 a proverb on anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges, somebody say lodges. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. You see, here's the thing. If we ignore suffering and we pretend as if suffering doesn't exist, when suffering happens, a loved one dies or we face our own imminent death. When suffering happens, we're blindsided by it, and then we get angry. And he's saying the fool, because they can't run away forever from the feelings, they can't always keep going to these escapist uh, things to get away from reality. When reality catches up to them, their response is anger. And he says anger lodges in the heart of the fool, meaning when you become angry in a sinful way, it somehow gets into your system. It becomes part of your being. It takes root in your heart. Verse 10, we see a proverb on nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Every generation believes that some time past is better than the current. Nostalgia. Always wanting to go back to the way things previously were. And what, what I find interesting is that this is 3,000 years old and they were doing it back then. Isn't that interesting? Yet in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, the writer has already made it very clear that time doesn't change things, that, that things just kind of are the same, meaning yesterday wasn't really better than today. When you think back 20 years to these good old days, what he's saying is 
is no, they weren't actually better. You just forget how bad they were. Like we tend to remember the good and the pictures and the highlights and we tend to forget the bad feelings that often associated those. Minus, of course, times of trauma. Of course, there's other instances where we do remember the bad. But in nostalgia, we only remember the good. And what he's saying is, is when we're, when we're constantly looking back for a previous time, which, by the way, this is very applicable when we consider death. And we consider the loss of loved ones. Man, if I could just go back in time. What he's saying is, is, is that's a foolish way to think. Because that, that, that doesn't allow you to live in the moment. It doesn't allow you to face the challenges that you need to face right now. To pay the bills that you need to bill, pay right now. To, to work the job that you need to work. To have the energy that you need to keep moving forward. And it also robs you of the joy that you have, that God has given you today, in this moment. And so he's saying, don't think like that. This isn't how the wise think. Now, the ironic point here is this. Considering your mortality does not lead you to depression, or at least it should not, but rather it prevents you from living a, a life of vanity. It leads you to live a life that is solid and weighty and concrete. Let's close with verse 13 as the author does. In verse 13 he says, sums it all up, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Meaning, death, this crooked reality of life that we don't like, is something that is under the sovereign thumb of God. And who can make straight what God has made crooked. Are you with me? Meaning there is a sting to death that you can't solve. We can pretend that it doesn't exist. We can pretend that in some way that we are able to escape it. We can, we can spend millions of dollars on research to allow us to live maybe five or ten years longer in this world. We can try to reverse the signs of decay through facelifts and Botox. But look, you can put makeup on the stinger of a bee and it doesn't take out the sting. A son rode in the cab of a truck with his father and as they're riding down the road, a bee fl flew into the cab. And the boy starts screaming and squirming and screeching. And in a quick moment, the father's, his father's big hand just flies across him and slams the bee into the dashboard. And the boy still has tears running down his face and he's still shrieking and, and he's still freaking out. And the father pulls back his hand and he shows his hand to the boy and in his hand lodged is the bee's stinger. Dry your eyes, son. The stinger's in my hand. Don't you understand that Christ took the sting out of death? Oh, saints, don't you understand what Christ has done for us on the cross? As He chose to die, as He faced death 
because he knew that he could see the other side. And in doing so, he took the sting out of death. His body remains with the marks of our sin in his hands. With the marks of our sin and our judgment in his feet. Meaning forever, Christ will be reigning and he will be worshipped with the stinger in his hand. And the call to us, his people, his saints, is this, dry your eyes. Dry your eyes. I've taken the sting out of death. Look in verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? All through the Old Testament, we see this prophecy of this one that is coming who can straighten what the Lord has made crooked. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet tells us in verse 3 and 4 that there's one coming, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley, listen to this, shall be raised up and every mountain made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places will be made into a plain. And this one in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16 declares, I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. And when Christ enters onto the scene in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 3, verse 6, it is said of him, crooked roads, crooked roads shall become straight. I wonder if anybody can rejoice because we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who can answer verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Who can make straight what God can make crooked? It is I, says Christ, who can make straight these crooked roads. Jesus Christ frees us from death in such a way, here's my application for us, that we can consider our mortality without anxiety, but rather consider our mortality with freedom and benefit from it with a renewed sense of life living life not for this world but for eternity and it is only when we live for eternity that we have joy in this life death is defeated death is defeated death does not have the last word john ryland at the death of his friend, at his burial, said this, Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave you in possession of death until the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O King of terrors. At the mouth of this dungeon, you shall not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of you by the great conqueror at that moment. You shall reign, you shall resign thy prisoner. Oh, you ministers of Christ, 
Ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare. Prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be nothing, but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. I wonder if anybody knows that those who die in Christ will one day be raised. The dead in Christ will rise first. On that great resurrection day, death will give up every single human being that it stole from this world who died with Christ and in Christ. And on that day, we will have real life that is filled with so much joy and so much gravity and so much weight and so much love and so much happiness. And we will live life forever with God. How did he do it? First, Jesus decided to die. Think about that. He didn't have to die. He chose to die so that He could put our sin in the ground. He decided to die to become our sacrifice so that death would not be able to keep us. And early one Sunday morning, the grave was vacated. You see, death could not hold Jesus in the ground. The grave could not keep Jesus in the ground. And so Jesus got up in order to flip the script. He got up in order to change the narrative. He got up to become the answer for verse 13. That He can make straight what is crooked because of sin and because of death under the sovereignty of God. Death was our greatest enemy. As St. Augustine says, the very violence with which body and soul are wrenched asunder is death. We don't like it, we don't glory in it, we, but we look at it. We look at it because he looked at it and he saw the other side. And so church, praise Christ that he took the sting out of death. Praise him that he stole victory from the grave. Praise him that he plundered hell and stole the keys of Hades itself. And so we then look at death and see the other side. And there we see Him, our treasure, our salvation, kept safe with God in heaven. Do you see Him? Do you see your name written in His wounds? For through His suffering, you are free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through His selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ today. God, help us see the reality of our own mortality. Considering our death, 
might we live for his glory in this world, clinging and cherishing Jesus Christ, seeing his beauty. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.